We're going to be talking in the book of Colossians tonight. So if you have your Bibles, turn there to the book of Colossians chapter 3. But while you're doing that, I'm going to share just a little story with you. you. Some of you might have heard the story, so if you have, don't give it away. But a husband fell ill with some very serious symptoms. His wife took him to the doctor who examined him and ran a couple of battery or a complete battery of tests. He told the man to get dressed and step outside. After the husband was gone, the wife said, give it to me straight, doc. What's wrong with my husband? Well, your husband is going to die unless you take some special measures for him. Of course, doc, I'll do it, whatever, anything, I'll do it. I love to help my husband. So this is what you must do. First of all, you must not allow him to have any stress whatsoever. Do whatever he asks you to do. You must make him three healthy meals a day. Smother him with kisses all the time. Tell him how much you love him. Give him whatever he wants or needs. Spoil him rotten and wait on him hand and foot. And then your husband shall live. On the way home, the husband asked his wife, well, honey, uh, you know, what, what did the doctor say? Am I going to get well? And without missing a beat, she said, man, I'm sorry, it's terminal. <laughs> so, so tonight, we're, we're going to talk about this need for us to, to die to more of ourselves. And so I, I, I imagine that's what that wife needed, just a need to die to herself. But no, but more specifically, we're going to be talking about this issue of dying to more of our sin dying to more of our sin. And so uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into our our topic tonight. Um, And let's go before the Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, God, I thank you uh, for this opportunity, this time that we can come before you, Lord. Our first and foremost prayer is, Lord, that you be glorified, that you be magnified. We worship you, Lord. You are the Lord God of heaven, the only wise God. And we ask that, Lord, your glory be on full display, that you speak, Holy Spirit, speak tonight. Speak to our hearts those words from heaven that you would have us to hear so that we may be fashioned and conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we just ask all these things. And Lord, we, as we pray, we remember our senior pastor, Pastor Gary, uh, and the 450 individuals that are in Israel. We ask, Lord, your, praying, your, your hand of protection upon them, traveling mercies. And Lord, uh, just let there be a blessing and a pouring out of your spirit there with them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so we're in the book of Colossians, as I mentioned, and just give you a little bit of background as I'm diving into Colossians chapter 3, diving into a book. I'd hate to just kind of dive in cold, but this is Paul the Apostle writing. Uh, where, you know, he's writing right at about 62, 63 AD. Um, he's writing to the, the church at Coloss. The city of Coloss uh, is, is, is in Asia Minor, you know, not far from Laodicea. And so if you remember your study on the book of Revelation, Laodicea is uh, the, one of the seven churches that, was, that the Lord wrote to, and uh, that was the lukewarm church, right? And so this is in proximity to where uh, Coloss is located. And so as Paul is writing, uh, many theologians believe that he never actually stepped foot in Coloss, 
but Paul had absolutely uh, been connected to the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus was about 70 to 75 miles in proximity to Coloss, okay? Uh, and so, Paul is writing, and he's very familiar with the issues of the day, right? The issues in that region, uh, some of the spiritual issues that he had to write and address, and what the needs of the saints were there. And so, uh, as we, you know, keeping that in mind, so, you know, Paul is, is actually writing from a Roman prison. So, this is one of his prison uh, epistles, okay? And so, it is believed that uh, by theologians that, and historians that Paul is, has actually written Ephesians and Colossians uh, as parallel books, as parallel epistles around the same time and sent them out. Okay, so as we're keeping that in mind as we're moving forward. And so, what were some of the spiritual things, the spiritual issues and climate of that day that Paul was addressing in his writings before we get into the text? Well, there was rampant sexual immorality, right? Nothing new under the sun. The stuff that we're seeing today, during that time, uh, you know, uh, it was rampant homosexuality. We saw things like temple prostitution going on. Uh, there was pederasty. You know, sex slaves, people were sold into sex slavery, so tr sex trafficking, that was a thing back then. Uh, you know, homosexuality, uh, things of that nature. And so, nothing new under the sun, those things were going on back in Paul's day. Also, one of the, the, the spiritual ideas, one of the big spiritual issues of that day was Gnosticism. So, Gnosticism is this idea that, uh, that knowledge can only be obtained through, you know, personal, private, uh, sort of subjective experience. The Gnostics also believed that flesh and the physical exterior, the physical material world is evil and could never be divine. Well, what's the problem with that, as Paul is writing? Well, you know, you, you, our Christology has a problem if physical material cannot be both, uh, to, you know, both in a, in a packaged in the divine. And if all material is, is evil, then that takes a stab at our understanding of who Christ was. And so, uh, if we understand that our, what we believe about Christ is absolutely essential, because if you have a wrong Jesus, how many of you know that the wrong Jesus doesn't save? The Mormons believe in a Jesus. Jehovah's Witness believe in a Jesus. But what Jesus do they believe in? And so, who we deem Jesus to be it, it is, is largely, is very much important. So, if you take a look for a second, and you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read for you. First John 4 and 3 tells us about how important our Christology is. First John 4 and 3 says, any spirit that does not confess the Christ, that Christ has come in the flesh, or the Christ, right? He uses the definitive article, the Christ has come in the flesh, is not of God. It is the spirit of Antichrist. And so, uh, we, we also look at this idea that the Gnostics believe that, that knowledge comes to us through personal, private, you know, uh, uh, subjective experience. As if you, you need to reach out to the divine to find out what he's saying to you personally, specifically. And they said that to the exclusion of the orthodox written word. And so, Paul addresses this as well. Paul, uh, if, if you go back to the book of Timothy, you don't, again, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Timothy 3.16, what does the Scripture say? That all Scripture is given by divine inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's nothing else that Paul is telling us that we need to seek. But now, this, you know, some would say, well, does that mean we don't need to seek the Holy Spirit? Isn't that what the Bible says we should do? 
Absolutely. And so where do we find out all that we need spiritually? It comes from the word. We absolutely, as Pastor Gary's been teaching us, we absolutely need to uh, understand the, rightly the work of the Holy Spirit. We need to seek the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be endued with power from on high by the Holy Spirit. But just know that, yeah, somebody was going to clap. Yeah. But just know that it's so important we understand God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all on the same page. And the Holy Spirit's never going to tell you something that transcends and goes outside of and contradicts the written word. He's never going to do that. Why? Because what did Jesus say? Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he's going to testify of me. Paul was careful to tell the Corinthian church, be careful that you do not go beyond or exceed what is written. And so, the Holy Spirit will direct you right back to God's Word so that you understand Him rightly and understand how to seek Him according to Scripture. Amen? All right, so, moving right along. So, there are three, three things that we can see here, if you're taking notes, three major themes in the book of Colossians that we'll see. This is according to, you know, J. Vernon McGee's commentary. I like J. Vernon McGee. He said this, that... One of the things that Paul deals with in the, in, in the book of Colossians is the thoughts and the affections and the pursuits of the believer, they are heavenly. The thoughts, the affections, and the pursuits of every believer are heavenward. That's where our heart belongs. Number two, he says, live, the living, the life of the believer is holy. That word holy, I know sounds very lofty and very pious, but the word holy simply means to be set apart. The living of the believer is to be set apart. Set apart from what? Set apart from the world that we live in. The scripture says that all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these things are not of the Father. He loved not the world, nor the things of the world. He that loves the world, the love of the Father, is not in him. And so we are admonished to be holy, okay? The living of the believer is holy, meaning separate and apart from the world. Third, the fellowship of the believer is hearty. Paul admonishes the believers how we ought to engage and interact in the body of Christ, in fellowship. That there ought to be things like, like we talk about the koinonia fellowship. There ought to be building up and edification among believers. There ought to be forgiveness among believers because sometimes we can rub each other the wrong way, can't we? We can offend one another. There ought to be compassion, brotherly kindness. We are showing love to our fellow believers because let's, guess what? How are you going to grow and, and exemplify the attributes of God in your life if you have nobody to pour them out on? Amen? So you have to, you, that's why you need to bring your body to church. That's why you have to be in fellowship because you can't grow in a lot of respects unless you're in the midst of other individuals that you can display love to. We can even see that in the Trinity, can't you? The Father perfectly loves the Son. The Son perfectly loves the Spirit, and it goes throughout the Trinity, throughout the Godhead. God is not going to tell you something to, to, to tell you to do something that He Himself doesn't practice. Amen? All right, so moving right along. In addition to the three themes that we can see, there are three major doctrines that Paul gets into. 
okay? Three major doctrines that he gets into. Number one, we deal with this idea of justification. Now, he doesn't mention these doctrines uh, in terms. He doesn't mention these doctrines outright. What, what we can see is weave throughout his language are the ideas and principles and the concepts here. And so, he deals with the idea that, that justification is by faith, the righteousness of Christ has been applied to the life of every believer by virtue of what Christ did in his death on the cross, his death, his death, burial, resurrection. Romans 5, Paul said, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Let me put that another way. God the Father treated God the Son on the cross like he had sinned so that he can treat sinners like the sinless Son of God. Amen? Does that make sense? I don't think I can say it again like that. And so, we are, so our peace with God is made, we are reconciled to God on, by virtue of what Christ did for us on our behalf, although we don't deserve it. We've been justified. We live a life just as if I had lived his life. When God sees us, he sees his son. Isn't that a beautiful thing? All right. So, the second great doctrine, and so all of these doctrines that I'm naming here, just these three, are dealing with the, 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 the life of the believer in his salvation. So, you've been justified by faith, then the next part of your salvation is your sanctification. Your sanctification, and just kind of like that word holy, that means sanctification simply means we're living a life that is set apart for God, set apart from sin, set apart from our old sinful ways of living. Okay? And so, sanctification is the believer working synergistically with the Holy Spirit. Why you need the, the power and continue to seek the power of the Holy Spirit? Because it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that you're going to live a life that's victoriously conquering your sin. Amen? Your, your sin is conquered on the cross. But then we have what Paul calls in Romans 7, this inward thing of sins in the flesh. Indwelling sin is what we call it. All right? And just like First Thessalonians, Paul said, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality and all manner of immorality. All right, third one, third doctrine, the doctrine of glorification. Glorification. We'll see this weaved in Paul's words here. He says, the, you know, glorification is, there's, there's going to be a coming time when all believers will reunite with Christ at his appearing, and we will be changed in an instant and given a glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15 says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, but we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That's what the text tells us. And the text elsewhere tells us that we don't know what we're going to be. I believe this is in 1 John. We don't know, believers, brothers, what we're going to be, but we know that we're going to be just like him. Amen. Amen. And we're waiting on that day. So it's kind of like, if we look at our salvation, it's kind of like that butterfly, right? You see the, the larvae stage, the pupa stage, and then you turn into that butterfly. That butterfly is that glorious end to the butterfly's life, although our life won't end. That'll be the beginning for us. We've been saved, we're being saved, and we're going to meet our final salvation. Paul said this to the Romans church. He said, he said, listen, your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. He's talking about our ultimate salvation when we're going to meet him face to face. That's why the gospel is beautiful. Amen. Because we have life and hope beyond the grave. 
All right. And so, as Paul is writing, he reminds us that God is not antinomian. That word just simply means that God is not without standard. Antinomian meaning without law. God is not without standard. He didn't just call you to be saved and just to leave you just like that. Okay? God does in fact love you and he desires that you come to him just the way you are. But he refuses to leave you that way. He refuses to leave you that way. God has called believers to live a life that is sanctified, set apart. First Peter 1 and 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, what does he say? Be you, be you holy, for I am holy, it is written. Now living holy doesn't mean we're perfect. The Lord knows we're not perfect. Just ask my wife. Um, but we're not perfect, but that means we're being perfected by the grace of and the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're living a life such that we're bringing glory to our Lord by being conformed to his image every single day. As Paul the Apostle said, I die daily. And he says this, it's not that, as I, not that I have obtained, right? He said, but this is the one thing that I'm doing. I'm pressing toward the mark, toward the prize of the high calling that is in Christ. Amen. Amen. So in, in, in Paul's writings, we're going to see all of that. So uh, as, as if you have your, book, your, your books, uh, your Bibles open to chapter three, I'm going to read a little bit. But before I read chapter three, and forgive me because, you know, I, I'm obsessed with trying to make the point. And so I'm, I'm always looking and pulling parallel passages. And so if you allow me just to read a little bit, a few verses out of chapter two, which also lays the foundation for what Paul talks about in chapter three. And so you don't have to, again, follow me if you just want to listen. Chapter 2, verse 21 says, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. Okay? So you were enemies, right? By wicked works, enemies in your mind, but you, you've been reconciled. Reconciled how? Verse 22, reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Verse of uh, uh, chapter, I'm sorry, that was chapter one, uh, verse 21 and 22. And chapter two, so were you reading the wrong thing? My bad, my bad. Verse, <laughs> chapter two, verse six. Chapter two, verse six. I was just in chapter one, chapter two, verse six. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So he's saying again, here's an admonition, here's an imperative. Just like you received the Lord, you must so walk in the Lord. That means your life, your lifestyle has to reflect him. Verse 9, for in him, and, and so I talked about the Gnostics, and so we see these two verses coming up that he deals with Gnostic ideas. Number, verse 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. So that, 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 that idea and that theology is what we call the hypostatic union. God, Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. How can you have 200% of something? I don't know. That's called a miracle. He's 100% God, 100% man. The Gnostics would not have believed that because they would believe that not, no, God wouldn't put on evil human flesh. But the Bible says he did so without sin. There was no evil in him, no evil in anything that he did. Verse 10, and you are complete in him. What did we say earlier? The sufficiency of who Christ is and what he did for you on the cross and the words that he left behind for us are sufficient for everything you need to know to live a life that is glorious in his sight, that brings him glory, and that brings you to a place of maturity. You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised 
and circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. So that term circumcision, we're all familiar with the Old Testament law, how circumcision was a practice in which uh, the, the, the men of Israel were all circumcised around the foreskin. Okay, I didn't want to get that heavy tonight. But they were circumcised, and that was simply, and a lot, as, as all of the, the ceremonial and civil laws of Israel were designed so that they would make God's people, it would make God's people distinct from the nations around them. And so too is every believer, every Christian, to live a life of distinction, to live a life that makes us distinct from the world around us. And it's in our life living, our life living. Paul said that a Jew is not one who is one outwardly, but one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, meaning that we've been cleansed from inside. So what am I saying to you? We're talking about this work of sanctification, and here's what you got to do. We're talking about righteous living. What I'm saying is that not that you're working for your salvation, but, you're the, but Paul said in the book of Philippians that you're working out your salvation. That means that salvation that's been worked in you, it's already been done, that grace that's been worked in your heart, you're working it outwardly so that now what you do outwardly matches the truth of who you are inwardly. Amen? All right, now let's turn to verse, uh, chapter 3. Let me get my verses and chapters right. <laughs> chapter 3. All right. If then, here's what Paul says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Now, we can stop right there. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, I, that could preach, I could preach that all by itself. You've been raised with Christ. What did he say? That you were buried with Christ in baptism. You were buried with Christ in baptism. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. When you get baptized, when we go down in the water, that is a public statement that the inward grace that has happened in you is that your old person, everything you were, died under, in Christ. When Christ died, you died with him. What did Paul say in the book of Galatians? For I have been crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live, but yet it's not me, but it's the Christ that lives in me. He says, so since you were, in, in, you know, 2 Corinthians, he said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things passed away. So he says, since that's the case, in verse 1, uh, seek those things where Christ is. Since that is the case. So you'll see that Paul is talking using a series of uh, 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 indicatives and imperatives. He'll, he'll talk about orthodoxy and then he'll talk orthopraxy, meaning he'll, he'll talk about some sort of theological truth and then say, okay, in light of that theological truth, here's what that requires of you. And so since that is the case, he says, seek those things which are above. Seek those things which are above and not on the earth. Seek those things, he says, set your mind, verse two, set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. So what does that mean? We're talking about being heavenly minded, heavenly minded. There's a saying out there that says, you know, you can be so heavenly minded, you're, not, you're no earthly good. That's a cliche. That's not even found in your Bible. <laughs> it's not found in your Bible. That was actually coined uh, by a gentleman who, who was, uh, and I forget his name, you know, I actually was reading it all day long, but uh, he, was a, he was a physician and a poet. And he coined that term. And then later on, the great theologian Johnny Cash wrote a song about it. <laughs> you can be so heavily minded and no earthly good. But what does it mean to be heavily minded? That's not a, the Bible doesn't teach that. You, the, actually, the opposite, the converse is true, that we are to be absolutely consumed with the things of heaven. We ought to be absolutely consumed with the things of heaven. 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, he said, your prayer ought to be this, that Father, your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. We are, as believers, we ought to be constantly consumed with the idea of what does heaven have to say on every issue? What does heaven have to say to me as a husband and a father? What does heaven have to say to us as citizens in our country? What does heaven have to say? We ought to be thinking about the things that please our God. And also, we ought to be thinking about who Christ made us. The scripture also says that we are seated with him in heavenly places. We're seated with him, meaning you are positionally, eternally in a position where now you are connected eternally to God and connected to heaven. You are now a citizen of another country, the scripture says, a better country. And so we ought to be heavenly minded, heavenly minded. And so we we continue to read, let's go to verse three. It says, for you died. (laughs) When did you die? Well, when Christ died, right? Galatians, when when Christ was crucified, I was crucified in him my old life. He says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with Christ in God. What does it mean I'm hidden in Christ? Meaning this, who you were and in terms of not only just your lifestyle, your identity. You are Christian. And if you are a Christian, you are Christian first above all else. You are Christian first. So what defines you as a believer is not the exterior social or natural things anymore. The scriptures, Paul said, we are to know no man according to the flesh any longer, meaning we're not using some sort of earthly worldly standard to address our our brothers and sisters in the faith. You're Christian. Regardless of your color, you're Christian. Regardless of your gender, you're Christian. So we don't lead with our earthly distinctions, we lead with our Christianity. We lead by, the, the, by, by virtue of the fact that here's who Christ made me, and now everything else that I was has to die and become subservient to that. Amen? Amen. All right. So, moving on. Let's look at verse 4. He says, when Christ, who is your life, that word life in the Greek is the word zoe. Zoe or zoe. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I'll look it up. So the word Zoe, it could encompass the physical, natural life that we have, but it could also encompass the spiritual life. It says, for Christ who died, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ, when Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. There's that idea of glorification. When Christ appears, he's coming back. And you're going to be changed, the scripture says, in a twinkling of an eye. Here's what 1 Corinthians 15 said, if I hadn't mentioned this already, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Our final salvation will be secure. Well, we're secure in him now. Because you know what we have? The Bible calls it the earnest of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in each one of you, and that's kind of like a down payment that says the Spirit of God lives in you now. You have been a partaker of the divine nature, as Peter says, and one day that divine nature is going to totally overtake this body, and the Scripture says we're going to be just like him. We're going to see him as he is. We'll see him as he is. All right. So, verse 5. Therefore... Put to death. Now, here comes the imperative, right? The indicative was, here's who you are. Here's your identity. You've put on Christ. Your old person has died. So, now here's the deal. You must put to death your members. 
What does it mean, your members? Not the church members. I'm sorry, don't, 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 <laughs> don't put to death the members. He's talking about the, the, the things in your, in your bodily practice, the way you carry this flesh, put it to death, which are on the earth. And he says this, he, he lists some things. So let's, let's talk about some things that he lists here. He talks about fornication. I'll read that list and then I'll go back. So Paul actually is going to get into two groups of sins, two groups of sins he's going to address. And those sins are sort of con are, are connected to the moral law, which tells us that God's moral law is still uh, 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 the, the, the standard upon which God requires his people to, to uh, operate. The moral law still abides, okay? But we're not under law in terms of the Mosaic law, but God still has a standard. Remember, he's not antinomian. He still has a standard and requirement for how we ought to live. And so the Decalogue, the, first, the Ten Commandments, the first ten in the commandments of God, he'll, he'll go through two of those sets. And so here's the first of those two. He says, therefore, put to death your members on the earth. Fornication, okay? And fornication is, in the Greek, the word pornea. Pornea, where we understand the word pornography comes from. As any sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage. Number two, uncleanness or impurity. That is, moral impurity, any thoughts, deeds, desires that oppose godliness, you know, godliness that yields self-control, uh, godly speech, purity of mind, body, and soul. Number three, he says, put to death passions. Passions. What do you mean by passions? These, uh, uh, by definition, uh, according to what Paul is saying here contextually, is, are those insatiable lusts to fulfill carnal desires. Insatiable lust. One passage, uh, the, the apostle said, flee youthful lusts. Those things that are just simply those urges in, in, in the flesh that would lead you to want to just to, 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 uh, to fulfill your own fleshly desires, by, thereby living a life in which you are pleasing the flesh and not walking by the spirit. Put to death the passions. You're not led of the flesh anymore if you're living by the spirit. That's what the book of Romans and book of Galatians says. So, the next thing he talks about, covetousness. Covetousness. That is the desire for anything that God has not authorized you to have. Covetousness. I'm desiring anything that God has not authorized me to have. And then idolatry. He says covetousness, which is idolatry. And the idolatry, anything that is above God, anything that you place uh, above God in your life, what holds the highest affection? What holds your highest level of devotion? What gets your time, your talent, and treasure? Is it God? Notice that here's a pathology of sins here. He goes from fornication to you know, uh, uh, uncleanness, impurity, passions, covetousness, idolatry. Notice that, and those are all found in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, because at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, you have idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. At the end of the Ten Commandments, you have covetousness. Thou shalt not covet. Because everything in, in, within that ten all hinges upon who you worship and what you desire. Who you worship and what you desire. And so he, he, he shows you that it's 
It's uncontrolled passion. It's, it's uncontrolled covetousness. It's covetousness that leads to sexual immorality. It's idolatry that leads me to believe that I should be living according to my flesh because who am I pleasing in that case? I'm living to please me and not the God who created me. So moving right along, verse six. And so understand that, uh, you know, as he's talking about these sins of the flesh, and before I get to verse six, but those sins of the flesh, you know, uh, or fornication or sexual immorality and those things which are linked to covetousness and passions and unbridled lust. Watch this. Uh, you, anything that, that your flesh is telling you you need, this, you know, Paul said you are not a debtor to the flesh to give it what it's asking for. You know why? Because you will never give it what it's asking for. It's insatiable. You can never give, give it your flesh what it's calling for. There's always going to be something else that it wants. It's never satisfied. And sexual immorality and all of those, 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 those pathologies of, of sins are never contained in just one chamber of the heart. How many of you know that? It's never contained in just one chamber of the heart. It always pervades outside of the heart, or outside of just that one area. You're never going to be able to conceal and just hide it over here because it's going to spill out into other areas of your life. And that's why the great theologian, the Puritan theologian, John Owen, said, uh, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. We're gonna to come to, um, uh, uh, sort of round us down to a close here, but don't worry, we're coming back next Wednesday, you're gonna be with me again. We're gonna do part two here. Um, so here's what Paul says, verse six, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Romans chapter one, Paul said, that the wrath of God is revealed under heaven against all unrighteousness. Hey, we get this sense that Paul is saying, we need to rid ourselves, cut ourselves off, circumcise ourselves, sanctify ourselves from these sins that weigh us down, these sins that, that, that mar the, the work of the Spirit in our life and that doesn't bring God glory and that, that, that damp, that, that puts a, uh, 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 that uh, actually just uh, shortens or, or, or impedes your growth and maturity. The reason why we need to is because God's wrath is poured out against such things. We get a sense that here's why we should get away from these sins because we see how God feels about it. God hates sin so, such, so much so that his son had to die for it that all of the wrath of God was poured out upon his son on the cross. And so with that in mind, when we come against the knowledge of what God calls sin in our lives, we reflect on the price that God had to pay for it, and it should change our view toward it. Amen? Yeah, I'll, I'll end with this as I'm talking about wrath. Here's, here, here's, uh, and, and wrath is not one of the most exciting things to talk about, but here's what one theologian said. Wrath is used with reference to both God and man. When speaking of God, wrath is in no way associated with fits of anger, vindictive or malicious acts. God's wrath is an expression of his holy love. If God is not a God of wrath, his love has no more than frail, worthless sentimentality. The concept of mercy then is meaningless. What, are we what is God merciful about if he's not wrathful over something? If there's no judgment and there's no wrath, what is the mercy all about? What makes the gospel the good news? 
The divine wrath is to be regarded, the, what scripture says, listen, the, the concept of mercy is meaningless and the cross was a cruel, unnecessary experience for the son of God if there's no wrath to compare mercy to. It says the divine wrath is to be regarded as the natural expression of the divine nature, the personal manifestation of God's holy moral character in judgment against sin. It is rooted in absolute holiness manifesting itself against the willful, high-handed, deliberate, inexcusable sin and iniquity of mankind. God's wrath is always regarded in Scripture as the just, proper, natural expression of His holiness and righteousness, which must always, under all circumstances and at all costs, be maintained. It is therefore a righteous indignation incompatible with the holy, righteous nature of God when He expresses wrath, and without the wrath of God, the gospel has no real value to us without the wrath of God. What are you saved from? You're saved from God's wrath. And that ought to be reason for us to praise the God of heaven who came and took that wrath upon himself in our place. Amen. So it's just like without the wrath of God, the gospel has no real value to us. It's not good news. It's more religious jargon. The sinful heart must hear that he has broken the law of a holy God and is under God's wrath so that the beauty of the cross, which is God's wrath poured out upon his son in the place of the sinner, becomes good news indeed. Becomes good news indeed. And so, here's what verse 7 says, in which you yourselves, you walked in them. Here again, Paul is referencing the believer as, as he's making reference to the believer, he's talking about our old life in the past tense. We got a world today telling us that we can have gay Christians or that we could have uh, people, you know, there was once, uh, an, you know, somebody got on television and said, you know, Jesus loves me. Uh, he, you know, he doesn't care what I do. Are you kidding me? He cares so much about the things we do that he, that, that, that the wrath of God poured out on him, Jesus suffered more on the cross than any sinner ever will in hell. That's how deep that was. He cared, absolutely cares about it. And so, to bring our Lord and Savior glory, we come to him seeking his face, pleading with him to make us more like him. Amen? So listen, let's pray. Let's go before the Lord. Father, it's in Jesus' name. God, we thank you tonight for, God, just the over, you know, the, the, the love that goes beyond our comprehension. The love that you poured out on us when we didn't deserve, Lord, the grace, the mercy. Help us to understand the, the depth of the, the nature, the gravity of the cross. And then as we look at our own personal lives, help us to develop such a love for who you are and a love for you, God, that it causes us to say, Lord, I wanna be like you in every area of my life. Help us, Lord, because as Paul said, Lord, I, sometimes the good I want to do, sometimes I don't always find it. As Paul said, I want to do good, but evil is still present with me. And in those times, Lord, your word says that you give us grace. You're not a God who's standing there with a hammer waiting to pound us the minute we get it wrong. You're a gracious father, as your word says, as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So, Lord, we come to you with arms lifted with hands lifted to you, saying, Lord, here I am. Do with my life what you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.